is Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Thursday, January 19th, 2023, and today will be better than yesterday. I'm Buster Only, working from my home in Montana. We have Sarah Abbott, who's working from the hangar, and of course, the Reverend. Uh, Taylor Schwink is working from the pulpit back in Connecticut. How are you guys doing today? Excellent. Just feeding Dolly, uh, my dog, some treats here under the desk. Uh, life is good, Buster. Nice. And my dog is sleeping at my feet. Sarah, what about you? Are you going to get a dog? What's the deal? I actually was just talking to my dad about that. I'm trying I'm trying to work around it. My current apartment complex does not allow dogs. So it's a tricky situation I'm in. So you're thinking about sneaking one in. It'd probably be a good idea to not talk about it on a really <laughs> prominent podcast. What do you think? Uh, yeah, if you're my landlord and you're listening to this, I'm not. I'm not. I promise you 100% on the record, not going to sneak in a yeah. dog. <laughs> it's not that Sarah Abbott. If you, you might sound like her. Uh, you know, the opinions might be the same. She might be working for ESPN, but it's not Sarah Abbott. Uh, that you know. Uh, today, a lot of conversation in the podcast about Shohei Otani. Uh, Alden Gonzalez wrote a great story earlier this week in which he talked with executives around the sport about the size of the contract that Otani's going to get. So we've got Sarah Langs, we've got Paul Ambikides, we have Alden Gonzalez who's going to join us. And before we get started, guys, I want to I want a quick estimate from each of you. What is the number uh, for Otani in total value of the contract? Sarah, you're first. I'm I'm gonna go 450. I know that's like egregious, but I think I'm gonna go 450. Uh, Taylor, I think the market's gonna be hot. I think he's gonna hit 600 million. I think you know five is probably the starting point for him, but I, I think it's gonna get to six. It's gonna be wild, wild, wild west. I think we ought to do some sort of a like a lottery. You know what I mean? Or some sort of a like betting on the birth date of a baby. We should all like yeah. come up with a chart. <laughs> Maybe have listeners. You know, and maybe have listeners chime in and we can Ooh. fill out one of those big charts and what numbers are still available. Does that make sense? I love that. I'm jotting it down right now. I love that. Okay. Before we get to all that conversation, we'll just run through some of the transactions the last week. Tommy Pham agreed to a one-year, $6 million contract with the New York Mets. The Mets adding extra depth on their everyday roster. It looks like Pham is going to be kind of a fourth outfielder, right-handed DH type. The Cubs signed first baseman Trey Mancini to a two-year contract. Uh, you know, this is someone who I think is going to help balance their lineup, uh, maybe serve as DH first base, share time with Eric Hosmer. Andrew McCutcheon returning to the Pirates on a one-year $5 million deal. That's pretty cool. The Brewers signed former Marlins outfielder, infielder Brian Anderson, one year, $3.5 million. Chris Paddock, who's coming back from Tommy John surgery, agreed to a $12.5 million three-year contract. Uh, that gives Paddock some guaranteed money, but it also uh, you know, locks him into the um, – Locks him into with the Twins in terms of getting through his rehab and, and having an affordable contract as he goes forward. Uh, I reported last week that all AAA parks are going to use an electronic strike zone in 2023. I'm going to ask Alden about all that. Earlier this week, Billy Epler, the Mets general manager, met with reporters as he introduced a couple of the signings from this winter, uh, and he was asked about the team losing out on Carlos Correa. I think we have a strong and deep lineup. Um, I'm confident in our, our group's ability to score runs, but look, you know, I think I, this goes without saying, and I think I've, I've said it in the past 
relating to, to any any one of the areas of the, of the organization. You know, like you can always be better. The Mets continuing to, you know, to try to get better as they move forward. The Red Sox also have been very busy as we get down the stretch here, signing some players as well. Taylor, what else you got? Buster, NBA season is in full swing. We got a full slate of offerings over here at ESPN Podcast that includes the CJ McCollum show, the VC show with Vince Carter. You've got the Low Post with Zach Lowe and the Hoop Collective with Brian Windhorse. You can check all of those out wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. We're driven by the search for better. When it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Buster. Just go to Indeed.com slash Buster right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Buster. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, the clutch hits, the strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Alden Gonzalez covers baseball for ESPN. Alden, how you doing? Great, Buster. How you doing, man? I'm doing okay. What's a, I know you, you live in California. Uh, what's the situation around your home with all the rain there? A lot of rain the last two to three weeks. A welcome sign partly, but I know a lot of people went through a lot there. Really cold, rainy. Um, I don't recognize California these days, Buster. Yeah. Uh, and has your family been affected, folks you know, by Lu- uh, by what's going on? Luckily, no. We don't live in areas that are susceptible to mudslides. And I know Northern California got hit a lot harder. Um, luckily, we're okay. But I know there are a lot of people suffering in the Bay Area and throughout. California is not necessarily equipped for, to handle that much rain. So it's it, it's been a little bit of a struggle throughout the state, no doubt. Yeah, and hopefully we get uh, dry days ahead for them. Uh, you know, as I've said many times on this podcast, uh, you know, we serve as a distraction. And so we'll uh, thinking about folks being affected by the rain out in California, but uh, we'll we'll talk some baseball today. And a lot of people were talking about your column the other day, uh, your piece that you did on Shohei Otani. 
and the amount of money that he might eventually get, I've, you know, have felt and been talking about for the last, uh, you know, year or so that the numbers five will be really crucial. Yeah. <laughs> will be, uh, you know, will be in play when he gets to free agency or maybe before. Um, what sort of feedback did you get in terms of the contract that uh, Otani could be looking at? Interestingly enough, I had people in my Twitter mentions that they talk about how $500 million is not a hot take at all, and it's actually going to be $600 million. And I'm like, whoa, okay, that's like slow, let's slow down here. Uh, I thought $500 million would be a lot, and just like you, I've been hearing 500 for a long time around Shohei Otani, especially after he did it again in 2022. And we talked a lot about the money that was spent this offseason and just the opportunity for teams to capitalize on a free agent class when these types of players are not available. These dynamic types of shortstops not, don't come available very often, especially not at that age. Well, next offseason, we're going to have the most uniquely talented player in baseball history. There has never been a Shohei Otani. Maybe if you go back to Babe Ruth, you could make that comp in some respects. There may never be another Shohei Otani available, especially not at the age of 29. I think he's going to have a ton of suitors. I think teams that you would never expect to get in the bidding for a player of this caliber of price tag are going to get in the mix just because of what it means he could fit on any roster. He changes the entire outlook of your franchise from an economic point, and not to mention he is an elite hitter and an elite pitcher. Uh, I think another a third straight two-way season like that million dollars might be a no-brainer given who might be involved. As I mentioned in that story, the Dodgers seem to be gearing up to get him. But the Mets, with Billy Epler, who recruited him from Japan, seemed like a pretty ideal fit. I wonder if the Giants get involved given how desperate they were for a star this offseason. My question and the question that other people raise is, how are you projecting this contract? Are you expecting him to be a two-way player for the life of it? Those talks are going to be really interesting. Yeah, and I was just talking with Paul Hembikides about that. And, you know, he talked about how uh, in a lot of cases with players, free agents, you know, there's always risk. Well, with Otani, there's less risk than there would be for a lot of other players because let's say he suffered a catastrophic uh, injury to his arm. Guess what? He's still an elite hitter. Yep, no doubt. (laughs) I'm curious – as we go, as we begin to go down this road, what do you hear about the Angels' efforts to retain him? I don't think they they want to rule it out. I, I just think it's going to depend on who the new owner is. And I think very different from the Washington Nationals situation where they traded Juan Soto before the ownership situation got resolved. With Shohei Otani, if they get this done when they want, it doesn't. It probably won't happen before opening day. We'll see, but it might happen. It should happen before the end of the 2023 season. That's going to be up to the new owner and how much money they want to spend. And just looking forward with their roster and their payroll, I think this is going to be the big question here. Is this new owner going to be willing to exceed the luxury tax threshold? I think that's something that Artie Moreno has clearly shied away from doing. And if you're going to have a roster that has Mike Trout, Anthony Rendon, and then Shohei Otani making that level of money, and you want to try to win around those three, you might have to do that every once in a while. Uh, especially with the minor league system where the the Angels have it. Um, but more, more to that, I, I, I just think Shohei Otani transcends all of those concerns. And having him on your team, what that means in terms of your marketability in Japan, your outreach throughout the globe, and just what you represent as a franchise in Major League Baseball, 
I think that's going to be a big thing about the new owner. That's going to be the big question is how motivated is that new owner to not only pay to keep Shohei Otani, but commit yourself to convince Shohei Otani that you're going to win. Because one thing we do know about Shohei Otani, and there are a lot of questions about whether he'd want to play in a big market and things like that, he wants to win. He's tired of losing. He's tired of having irrelevant August and Septembers. He wants to win now, and you're going to have to sell him on that. It's interesting. In a lot of cases, you and I have seen in free agency, uh, you know, a player and these are Scott Boris clients. We hear this with Scott's guys all the time when they get to that, you know, the the free agent year, there'll be a conversation between the team and the agent and and, uh, you know, the agent uh, instructs the team, look, he's not ready to hear an offer. You know, you hear that from Scott all the time. He's not uh, in the stage like this. I tell you what, I think this is so important to the Angels that I almost would take a page from what the Yankees did with Aaron Judge. And Aaron Judge was angry when the Yankees leaked out that offer. But from a franchise perspective, I totally get it. Like you, if you're the Angels, you're an incoming owner, right away you're going to have the situation which is going to define you in the eyes of your fan base. And I want my fans, if I'm the incoming owner, heck, yeah. if I'm Artie Moreno, to know that I tried. And so if 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 uh, Otani... Let's say his agent came out and said, look, he's not ready to hear an offer. I think if I'm owning that, the owner of that franchise, I'm saying I might leak out to Alvin Gonzalez of ESPN. Please. Or I might just come out on the record and say, you know what? We're prepared to offer him $550 million or yeah. whatever that number is because it's too important for the franchise for this perception to be that you're just dumping this guy because it concerns the money. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I agree with that. And if you look back to the national situation with Juan Soto, I think part of the reason yes. then was you didn't want the new owner to be labeled as, quote unquote, the bad guy, right? Who let Juan Soto go. And then they were thinking, you know, maybe this will sort of streamline a sale because the most important big ticket item has at least been taken care of and you don't have to deal with this anymore and you can start from scratch. Well, that's not going to be the case with the Angels because Perry Manassian their general manager said at the onset of the offseason, even though he's approaching his free agent year and there's been no indications that he's going to sign a long-term deal, at least not now, he told me that he, he said that he's not going to trade Shohei Otani. So the new owner will get saddled with this, and maybe saddled is too strong a word because maybe the new owner would want to. And that new owner does run the risk of being labeled as the guy who let Shohei Otani slip from the Angels' grasp. And how do you combat that? I hadn't thought about it that way, Buster, but I agree. Yeah, absolutely. You put it out there. Not just I tried, right, which, you know, a lot of you see a lot of foreign offices leak this kind of stuff to reporters sometimes to make it look like they tried for a free agent that they didn't. I mean, really try. Like, really um, offer a big contract like that. If you want to get into the fives with $550 million contract, that's an effort right there. And you put the ball in their court and you're right. I mean, coming in, especially all the negativity surrounding Artie Moreno over the last several months, several years, you want to build good public will. Right. And that's that's a good way to do that is to be really aggressive, trying to retain the most uniquely talented, talented player in history. And you can do it with great respect toward Otani, you know, who probably, uh, you know, would, would like to keep this under wraps if it turns out that he's going to head toward free agency, much in the way the judge wanted to keep it under wraps. But you can come out and say, if you're the incoming owner, look, we're prepared to offer five hundred fifty million dollars. We're hearing from his agent. He's not. uh He's not prepared to hear that offer now, and that's totally Shohei's uh, prerogative. That's the right he's earned with his service time in the big leagues, and we have complete respect for that. 
So I think there's a needle to, you know, to, to, to thread there in trying to make this clear because he's so important to the franchise. As you know, and I know before the trade deadline last year, a lot of people in that front office are like, look, it looks like he's going to become a free agent. We need to trade him now to get as much value as possible in a deal because that value is going to go down once we get the offseason. Uh, it'll be very interesting to me uh, whether or not the Angels actually entertain offers for him in midseason because let's face it, we'll yeah. have never seen, we've never seen a player with the range of skills available at the trade deadline in the way that Otani is. And I'm never. just picking out the Yankees. Imagine, you know, they, uh, they're having an issue and they need a left-handed hitter and they need a, a frontline starter. Well, you know what? This is, it's all in one. This is the piece that could put you over the top. I will say, though, I feel like if you get all the way to this point, right, and the Angels could have traded him going into the 2022 season, they could have traded him that trade deadline, they certainly could have traded him this offseason significantly more than they would have, you know, two months before, three months before he becomes a free agent. I think if you get to this point, you're wanting to try to extend him, right? And I think if they get to July and they're out of it, I think at the very least, they're going to want to have a as much of a realistic sense as possible as to what their chances are of retaining him as a free yep. agent, of signing him to an extension before they trade him away. Because I know teams could always, players could always sign back with their teams. It's very unlikely after a trade that they come they back. They almost never do, to they your They almost point. never do. They almost never re-sign with a team that trades them at, uh, at the deadline. Right. And, and I will say with Shohei, um, and only he and his agent as Bolelo CAA know this, but, um, I wonder how much fit outweighs compensation for him. And I think that's one thing that we've seen throughout his career, right? He left Japan early. And so he was only able to sign for the major league minimum when he came to the United States. Um, before he really established himself as a two way player, he agreed to a deal within arbitration that made him the most, the most, one of the most underpaid players in baseball history over these last two seasons with the money that he was making. Um, and then going into this offseason, his final year of arbitration, there were a lot of people wondering, how is this arbitration case going to play out? After two seasons as an elite two-way player, there's no precedent here. How do you set an arbitration figure? They ended up agreeing to a pre-arbitration salary. I think it was $30 million, but you, you could correct me if I'm wrong on that. Um, comfortability has outweighed compensation so far for Shohei. Will that change as a free agent? Has he just been waiting to cash in as a free agent? Maybe, but I think there's something to be said for, is he comfortable in a place? And that's going to play a big factor more so than just, I wouldn't say that he's motivated to sign the biggest contract in history, even though he might just get it anyway. Uh, I think he needs to be comfortable somewhere. And that's going to be very important. Yeah, and... When I talked to Hembo, he mentioned, I, I feel like as we sit here today, we can pretty much say it's going to be one of two teams. It's either going to be the Mets or it's going to be the Dodgers. You know, he brought up the Giants and I'm like, and you know Shohei better than I, I do. You've been around him uh, on a regular basis more than I have. I, I told Hembo, I'm like, he wants to win. And the Giants yeah. don't appear to be close to winning. He mentioned the Red Sox. I'm like, no, the Red Sox are not the team they're going to pay uh, you know, Shohei Otani more money than they would have paid Mookie Betts and Xander Bogarts combined. That's not going to happen. Uh, to me, you know, the Dodgers are clearing the deck because they're going to take a run at this guy. But the yeah. Dodgers, I, I think, have some financial boundaries that they work within. 
And the Mets don't necessarily have that. And the Mets have all of these contracts coming off the books in the next couple of years for all the money that Steve Cohen is spending on 2023. He is in a tremendous position to take a run at Otani with the, and throw the biggest number at him because in the next three years, he's got Verlander off the books. He's got Scherzer off the books, Canna, Escobar, all those guys. I think it's going to come down to the comfortability that you talked about. You know, Los Angeles, a place that he knows with a team that, uh, you know, is clearly very successful and can win on an annual basis versus the Mets, who probably are going to throw out the biggest numbers. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And it's what a lot of people believe is going to, it's going to come down to. Some people do mention the Giants. And I wonder, you know, that Farhan is a very smart executive. Gabe Kapler is a very creative manager. I wonder if they could, they could, um, get their competitive window in here a little bit quicker. Um, I think they did some pretty nice moves this offseason, even though they, they fell short of the two big guys, obviously. But you know what? I, given who Shohei is and just the different ways he helps the team, it's hard for me to narrow it down so to only two teams right now because I think okay. every team, not every team, because it's not going to be like when he first came out of Japan, but I think there's going to be a lot of teams that just try to position themselves as best as possible to try to land this guy. And, you know, it's probably not the Kansas City Royals or the Detroit Tigers or the Cleveland Guardians or, you know, any of those small market teams because they can't swim in those waters. But I think there's going to be a lot of teams that emerge because this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Like, is it crazy to say that the Padres are going to get involved, right? Like, maybe it is, but they could lose Juan Soto in a year. So maybe they go all in on Shohei Otani and they make that work. The Mariners are another team, a team in Seattle, the team of Ichiro Suzuki. Um, they haven't spent on free agency this offseason. They've upgraded their rosters mostly via trade. I think that was really smart of them. Um, they could pay for a Shohei Otani. Think about how that would change the dynamic in Seattle, right? And, yeah. But I could go down down the list of teams, and I think I could make a case for every single one of them as to why they would want Shohei Otani. Truth be told, we don't know what Shohei Otani wants. We don't know exactly what he's going to be looking for. Um, As I think we a lot didn't of when two, he came over here and he shocked everybody no, by picking the Angels. Nobody thought that he was going to sign with the Angels. But a big reason why he signed with the Angels was because they laid it out for him for why they were going to give him every opportunity possible to be a two-way player in the United States. Now, it's going to be a lot easier for teams to sell him on that now because he did it. But they had a very detailed plan for him and how that was going to work and how they were going to help him make that work. And he valued that. So he chose a team that nobody thought he was going to go to. And I would expect that free agency is going to be is going to play out in an unexpected fashion, maybe in a different respect, but I can't narrow it down right now because I think it's just going to be too wide open for a player this unique. Two quick ones before you go. One minute each. Uh, Trevor Bauer, uh, released by the Dodgers. Uh, what's your sense about uh, where he might land next, if he's going to land next? It's tough. Um, most people that I talk to don't think he's going to sign elsewhere, but there's some people who don't rule out, rule it out because like I said in the story that detailed this and you know this, I mean, all it takes is just one team, right? And look at where free agent contracts have been this offseason to get a starting pitcher who you would think, I know he hasn't pitched in a year and a half, is going to be top of the rotation guy for the major league minimum. Here, here, here's the thing with him. I'm sure there are front offices throughout the entire sport that are debating about the merits of signing Trevor Bauer because of just the efficiency standpoint of signing a guy who could potentially still be that good for $720,000. But at the end of the day, this is going to be an ownership decision. And one thing that we know about Trevor Bauer so far is that he has not shown any semblance of contrition about any of the stuff that has surrounded him. 
Um, he has not been apologetic whatsoever about any of the missteps that he's had or how he might have harmed people along the way. And that's going to be a final threshold for teams. That, teams are going to have to overcome that. That's going to be the final hurdle for teams to overcome when it comes to signing this guy. And our team's going to be willing to do it. Uh, unless Trevor Bauer changes his stance completely and does show some contrition and does become apologetic about what he's done, teams are going to have to overcome the fact that this guy is not showing any contrition whatsoever for any of this stuff, for being suspended longer than anybody in the history of the domestic violence policy. And how are you going to justify doing that? And I think that last hurdle is a difficult one to clear right now. Last one. I wrote a story last week that the uh, RoboUmp is going to be installed in all 30 AAA parks this year, giving the ability at that level to have a full-on automated strike zone. But that's not what they're going to do, Alden, because they used in the old Florida State League uh, a system last year where basically players could challenge uh, ball strike calls that were called by umpires using the Robo system. Uh, you know, the, the pitcher can challenge, the catcher can challenge, the hitter can challenge. And what uh, Major League Baseball officials saw were the teams began to deploy some strategy in that, you know, saving their challenges for big spots. You're not going to, you know, challenge a borderline 0-1 call or strike one call, that sort of thing. That feels like to me in my conversations is gaining a ton of momentum because yeah. they know that if they do a fully automated system, one, that obviously changed the umpire's position, which I think, generally speaking, is a secondary concern. What I, the primary concern I'm hearing from folks in baseball, they don't want to change the catcher position. You know, this spot, uh, you know, I place agree. of incredible nuance, you know, the Molina brothers and the idea of, of pitch presentation or pitch framing or, you know, uh, lobbying for your pitcher with the umpire, uh, working the strike zone, uh, working the hitters a little bit. And changing the catching position to where the only players who inhabit it are guys who can block balls in the dirt or throw, you know, and throw well, but don't necessarily need to have all those uh, specific skills that have been used uh, and refined in the game. So I think that's what they're going to wind up adopting, whether it's 2024, 2025. What do you think? Yeah. And one thing I heard too is if they eventually are going to go full ABS. You're gonna, you can't go full ABS and then it doesn't work out well. And then you go back to the challenge system. It's a lot easier to start with that challenge system. And then if you want to eventually go full ABS, you can go there. As soon as I saw that they were experimenting with the challenge system in the lower levels, I I think a year or two ago, I loved it. I thought that was a great compromise where, like you said, I love the art of being a catcher, right? And framing pitches and the value that's been inherent with that and how guys have been able to um, preserve their careers because they've mastered that skill. And look, I know umpires get a lot of grief. um, And a lot of times they blow up on Twitter when they miss an obvious call, but they get a lot of these calls right. Okay. Uh, The vast majority of these pitches which are coming in at 100 miles an hour moving all over the place, they get it right and they do a good job. There are some missed calls every game. Some of them are very egregious, and I just love being able to challenge those specifically, not relying full on ABS because, by the way, as Rob Manfred pointed out in the winter meetings, ABS is not perfect, right? They still have a lot to work with with that system to get it where they need to. And as you mentioned, the strategy behind the challenges and saving them, I think it's a fun thing to keep track of during a game. Uh, When do you use it? 
I, I think it's great. I want to see it play out more. There's so much that I want to see play out this season with regards to pitch clock and the bigger bases and the shift restrictions, but also the ABS stuff. I love it that it's coming to AAA parks. It means it's close to the big leagues, but I love the concession of not rolling out ABS full-time. All right, sir. Good to talk to you, Alden. Thank you, Buster. This is The Numbers Game with Sarah Langs. Sarah Langs, reporter, producer at MLB.com. Sarah, how you doing? I'm doing great, Buster. How are you? I'm hanging in there. We are saturated with Otani talk this week because he's, as at the outset of uh, the, you know, having a year in which he's going to be talked about constantly, you know, much as we did with Aaron Judge last year. So I'm going to give you a simple question first, and then I'm going to ask you about a strategy that uh, I've thought about if I were the Angels. One, tell me, based on what you saw this winter, based on the fact that no other player can match Otani's production, combined production as a pitcher and as a hitter, what is his contract, total contract value going to be when he signs this? I do not think that is a simple question. First of all, the way you posed that, I was like, oh, there must be another question other than the number. I mean, I think everything is going to start with a five, right? The average annual value, which I know you didn't ask, is going to be in the 50s. And I mean, I think the total has to be 500 million or more. I mean, it's impossible to even fathom these numbers and it's impossible to even fathom a player like Otani could exist but he does and he has done it he has done both ways for multiple years now we've seen his value I mean I was looking at projections the other day and if you look at overall most projected war for 2023 if you add together his pitching and hitting war which is what we do with him he is projected to lead the majors ahead of anybody else so that is the most valuable player not in the award sense but in the money sense and i mentioned when i was talking with alden that uh, you know in thinking about it if i were the angels and you have an incoming owner who's in a real he's going to be in a terrible spot uh you know well maybe a potentially great spot if he can convince otani to stay and you sign him but if the Angels get the sense that they're not going to be able to sign him, I mentioned, look, I take a page from the Yankees and what they did with Judge in the spring. I would essentially go to Otani's representatives and I'd say, even if you're not ready to hear the numbers, we need to tell our fan base how serious we are about you because you're that important. And we can't have a narrative that we didn't want to keep you, weren't willing to pay you. So we're going to put out publicly the numbers that we're willing to discuss. And if you don't want to take these numbers, you don't want to entertain it, you want to get the free agency, you want to hear from the Dodgers, you want to hear from the Mets, that's totally your prerogative. And we respect that right, but we also need to conduct our business because, Shohei, you're too important of a player to let anybody think that we didn't care about keeping you. Does that make sense? Definitely. I mean, if you think about Otani, the first thing I think of is that Angels uniform right now. Yeah. That doesn't mean he'll be in that uniform forever. But he is so tied to that team and that fan base, despite, you know, no postseason games, success, any of that. So I do think it's very imperative for the team to make it clear they're trying to keep him and who knows what'll end up being the deciding factor for him. I mean, if you remember when he came over here, 
he signed as a minor league free agent because of his age, because he wasn't able to be posted normally yet, and because he was so eager to come here, by the way. So he was choosing between a bunch of minor league deals, which were essentially the same. Maybe there was a signing bonus, maybe something else was involved. But overall, he was really choosing for the team he wanted to be on. And I always think of that, that he really chose the Angels. It wasn't that they offered the highest posting fee to his team or that they offered him some huge contract at the time. So I really wonder how that fact that he made his first choice here based on the team, the environment, the location he wanted to be in, how that's going to factor in. Because we're talking about all of these outlandish numbers that he deserves. And he will get one of them. But I really could see him not going to the highest bidder straight up if everyone is already in that echelon. All right, Sarah, let's play the numbers game. Number three. Number three is 249 and 234. So when the Yankees signed Carlos Rodon, I was talking about how many strikeouts Rodon had last year, how many Cole had, and the idea that they could be a really powerful duo. So now we have projections from Steamer on Fangraphs, and Garrett Cole is projected for 249 strikeouts, which would lead the majors. Corbin Burns in second with 239. Jacob DeVrom, third with 236, and Carlos Rodon, fourth at 234. So only 15 teams since 1900 have had multiple players with 230 strikeouts in a season. I think I mentioned this back in December as well, but the Yankees have never done that. So we last saw it in 2019. The Nationals, of course, had three with Patrick Corbin, Max Scherzer, and Steven Strasburg. And in 2019, Cole was part of one of these duos on the Astros with Justin Verlander. Number two. Number two is 95. So we've been talking in and out, and I've been making reference to these positional top 10 lists that uh, it feels like we all put together around this time uh, every year, just looking at, okay, who is the best player at each position? And as I was going through shortstops and figuring out where to put Corey Seager, I came across this stat, which I think is pretty fun. So there are five players last year who were in the 95th percentile or better in both expected batting average and expected slugging percentage. So I talk about those stats on here pretty often, but basically those are based on the quality of contact you're making and how often you're striking out. So the individuals who are in the 95th percentile or better in both of those stats, the really elite group, Aaron Judge, Bryce Harper, Freddie Freeman, Jordan Alvarez, and Corey Sayer. And I think he managed to become kind of underrated in that year in Texas. I don't think many people would have guessed he would be on that list. I think the other four names are like, oh yeah, of course, no question. So I think this is really interesting as we look at that reloaded Rangers team heading into next year. Number one. Number one is 23. We'll go with that. So 
this past year was Juan Soto's age 23 season. And a lot has been said about how Juan Soto had a down year, and he certainly did for Juan Soto, which, by the way, is a whole other galaxy and planet anyway. But as I, again, was kind of looking through, okay, who are my top left fielders with the idea I'll probably move back there, I went back to one of my favorite stats, which is the highest OPS plus for all players throughout baseball history through their age 23 season. So this is with a minimum of 2,000 plate appearances. We have Ted Williams at 190, Ty Cobb at 171, Mike Trout, 169, Albert Pujols, 165, and then Juan Soto tied with Eddie Matthews at 157. So for all of the fact that maybe he wasn't exactly the player we've come to expect last season, and that's true, he is still up there with Hall of Famers and two future Hall of Famers in Trout and Pujols in terms of being the most productive guys through this point in a career. Before you go, Sarah, I wanted to mention you are going to receive a an award at the New York Baseball Writers Dinner, which is a week from Saturday. The other award winners, if I'm correct, Sarah, will include Aaron Judge, MVP, Paul Goldschmidt, MVP, Justin Verlander, on uh, anybody who won a major award is there. Steve Cohen's going to be there. The Mets owner, Buck Showalter, is going to be there. Aaron Boone's going to be there. Brian Cashman. It's the biggest night. Who are you looking forward to as an award winner to meet that night? Can we first point out that I do not fit there at all? I mean, I'm so <laughs> honored I got the call from uh, Mark Feinzam. He's part of the leadership with the New York Baseball Raiders uh chapter and i was so surprised i mean you know very very honored you know voted on by my peers by the new york baseball writers uh chapter but i do not fit on that list at all you're not answering the question Who i know the meeting oh my gosh you know i haven't even thought about it that way so i'm not sure i have a great answer but I'm so excited to be in the presence of all of these people who had such incredible seasons, you know. Sandy Alcantara seems like a really funny guy, so if he's there, I would certainly love uh, to chat with him. I know just from um, one of our part-time reporters on MLB.com has a great story of, like, tripping on the field and him laughing before he went over to help just little things where he seems like a really fun guy so i'll say him but again i do not fit one of these things is not like the other vivid seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring experience every pitch assist and game-winning shot live and in person and the best part each transaction is a step toward a free 11 ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with Code Baseball. That's Code Baseball. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats, experience it live. Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you gotta check out NextGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, 
moxidectin, and pyrantal chewable tablets. NextGuard Plus Chews provide one-and-done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. Jumping into the numbers. This is Hembo Knows on Baseball Tonight. Hembo is Paul Ambikides, a content producer for ESPN or the head honcho on the show, Get Up, or the voice in Mike Greenberg's head. We're not quite sure exactly what's going on. Hembo, how are you doing this week? Mustard, I'm fantastic. We have hit a bit of a lull here in the baseball calendar, of course, what? as we are, we are preparing for the big playoff games this weekend. I just wanted to, to take inventory and double-check to ensure that you're still in good spirits after the Vikings lost that hard-fought game against the Giants on Sunday. What say you? Well, here's the thing. I went into that game with, you know, hardened by over four losses in Super Bowls with zero expectation that they were going to win the game. And, and you know, that's – I'm kidding with that, uh, sort of. <laughs> I, I didn't expect they would win, but I also have paid attention enough to know how fortunate they were during the year. And when it was over, my son, the Titans fan, you know, sent me a text, kind of giving me a hard time, like, I'm happy. Like, they had a, they had a better season than anybody expected – uh, they were the luckiest team probably in NFL history during the course of the year, and it was a lot of fun. Am I am I off base? No, I don't think so. Uh, I, that's still a game that you could have, should have won perhaps, but I'm glad that you had the, the your head on straight and that you didn't look at them as a 13-win team. Rather, you looked at them as a team that was outscored on the season, which was obviously uh, super fluky. Right. One team wins the Super Bowl, and you hope that the fans of the other teams that don't win the Super Bowl can find something to enjoy about the year. <laughs> and I, as a Vikings fan, enjoyed the season. I appreciate it. What about you? Are you, are you confident the Eagles are going to you know, follow up from their midseason dominance and wind up winning this thing? I can't say that I'm confident merely because Jalen Hurts, the quarterback, has legitimately a bad shoulder. He's got a bum wheel. And the throwing shoulder is no joke. He runs all the time. He throws the ball down the field all the time. And um, you saw how good the Giants are and how tough the Giants are. So I can't say that I'm confident until I actually see my quarterback look like my quarterback. But that being said, this has been a really good year for us, man. My, my daughters were born in August. The Phillies wound up in the World Series uh, unexpectedly. I know, I know. You've covered this like six they times. They don't year. know a world where my teams <laughs> lose. So I'm going to keep riding that high. But hopefully Jalen turns it around. Well, and I think you agree with me too. Like the Giants, you watch them, there's a thing going on there, a good thing. Like there, there, there's a vibe thing going on there. Kind of like we, st and I'm not saying the Giants going to reach the Super Bowl, but I remember as the Bengals were playing well last year, going up the Super Bowl. Like you could feel the vibe they were on. Like they were on a roll. Yeah, coaching matters, and the Giants found themselves a really good coach in Brian Dayball. That's for yeah. sure. Exactly. All right, let's get into it this week. Andrew McCutcheon lands with the Pittsburgh Pirates. It made me smile. Uh, he's been one of the great guys in baseball. He's coming up on some big round numbers. You know, 2,000 hits he'll get early in the year, 300 homers he'll get some sometime during the course of the year. I think, what, 400 doubles he'll reach during the year. What do you got in Andrew McCutcheon? So I absolutely love the Baseball Hall of Fame, as, as you know. But I do think sometimes that the Hall of Fame debate obscures sometimes players like Andrew McCutcheon. Yes. who might fall short of 
of that standard, but still very much deserve to be celebrated. I mean, the Pirates have been playing baseball since 1882, and it is not a stretch to say that he is genuinely among the very best players that have ever played for them. Let's go back to his prime. That was from 2012 to 2015. McCutcheon finished fifth or better in National League MVP voting in all four of those seasons. He won, of course, in 2013. The only other players in Pirates history with four top five finishes are Roberto Clemente and Willie Stargell. If you're on that list, you're a legendary Pirate. Now, you know, a 400 on base percentage, in my judgment, is the standard as a great hitter as far as I'm concerned. Andrew McCutcheon did that, a 400 on base, in all four seasons over that span. Buster, the last center fielder to go four years in a row, a 400-plus, was Mickey Mantle from 1961 to 1964. The only one to do it since, of course, is Mike Trout. And, of course, it's no coincidence that in those last three seasons, 13, 14, and 15, those are Pittsburgh's only postseason appearances since 1992. He is their best player, at least since Barry Bonds. And seeing him in black and gold this year is going to bring a lot of joy to me, for sure, as a baseball fan. Yeah, and in some regards, I feel like Andrew's uh, you know, standing in baseball reflects the Pirates' standing in baseball. You hope that he's not forgotten. You hope the Pirates' teams of those years are not forgotten. Because I've told you this, two of those seasons, I was convinced at the end of the year, going into the postseason, that they were the best team in the National League. But they also landed in a wildcard game, and in 2014, they faced Madison Bumgarner at the very outset of the greatest postseason performance by any pitcher in the history of baseball. And in 2015, the very next year, they run into, in the wildcard game, Jake Arrieta, who is at the back end of the greatest second half of any pitcher we've ever seen. Those teams were great. They had the defense and, the, and all the shift figured out way before everyone else did. But, but McCutcheon was the glue. He was the best player by a long shot, st- stuck right in the middle of that lineup. I would have loved to have seen him enjoy mo- more postseason success during that time. They were sort of just a victim of circumstance in a loaded division against those great pitchers, like you said. They could have easily won a championship in one of those few seasons because they were that kind of good if things had broke differently. So you believe, and based on the notes you sent me, that the Minnesota Twins have a clear path to win the American League Central. I think you're crazy, but go ahead and try to convince me. It's actually simple math, Buster. I'm going to show you the work on the back of my napkin over here. Here's the equation. A healthy Carlos Correa plus a healthy Byron Buxton equals an American League Central title for the Minnesota Twins. Here are the numbers. So last season, those two players shared the starting lineup 70 times. In those 70 games, Minnesota went 39-31 and 31 with a plus 41 run differential. That's a 90-win pace over the course of 162. In all other games, Minnesota went 39-53 and 53 with a minus 29 run differential. That's a 162-game pace of 68 wins. In other words, the difference between having both of those guys in your lineup and having at least one of them out was equivalent to the difference of the Blue Jays, a playoff team, And the Angels, very much not a playoff team. Now, the if healthy is obviously the $300 million question in this case. Correa missed 26 games last year. We've had to read the last month about all the medical issues with him. Seemingly, his ankle was repaired by the same guy that once removed Ty Cobb's tonsils, it seems. And Byron Buxton hasn't played 100 games in a season since 2017. That's obviously the big if. They have questions in their rotation. There are questions all over the field. But the bottom line of it is, when those two guys shared the starting lineup last season, that was a 90-win team. If they can get that for, say, 120 games this year, I think they got a shot. So you cleared your throat uh, right in the middle of you said, if Carlos Correa can stay healthy, and you went, <clears throat> and I didn't know. Was that on purpose? Is that what you're thinking? 
It was. <laughs> now, the, 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 I uh, heard it that way. And I just want to tell you, because I've done some reporting and, you know, writing a piece on this. Uh, you know, Scott Boris came out, told USA Today the other day that, no, the Mets just had one doctor look at Carlos Correa's medical information that the Giants banged. Uh, that's not true. Multiple doctors looked at this information. And, oh, by the way, it's interesting. The Minnesota Twins, people, you know, have said, well, the Twins know better than anybody. The Twins reduced their offer to him from $285 million to $200 million. So the idea that the Giants and the Mets are kind of on this wacky train with medical stuff, uh-uh. All teams apparently are looking at Correa's medical information and are worried about something in the near future. And based on my conversation with people, I think it's arthritis. That's good insight. Um the issue here is not the doctors or the evaluation. The issue here is the leg itself that we know that does not, however, mean Buster that in the short term, that contract might, that contract might still play up for the Minnesota twins. So long as he can keep performing and you can get 130 games a year out of him. All right. Who are going to be baseball's Jacksonville Jaguars in 2023? Yeah. So I'm watching the playoffs and I, I noticed the Jaguars finished three and 14 last year. They had the number one pick in the draft. They play in Kansas city over the weekend. So I thought to myself, who might do that in, in baseball? We see, uh, you know, year-over-year year changes, uh, considerable changes all over the place. I'm going to present the case for the Texas Rangers, all right? Follow my logic trail okay. here. So the Rangers last year went 68-94, and 94, but they were better than that. Their run differential, which was minus 36, says the quality of their play was equal to that of a 77-win team, okay? So think about it through that prism. The Rangers went 15 and 35 in one run games. That's hard to do. That was the worst record of its kind across baseball. Now, I actually really approve of what they've done with their starting rotation. DeGrom, Yavaldi, and Heaney in the offseason. I do think they overpaid for DeGrom, but if he can make 25 starts for them, we know what those are going to look like. Plus Martin Perez and John Gray Buster. That's going to be the hardest throwing starting rotation maybe in baseball history. All those guys sit 95 plus. And I wouldn't be at all surprised at all if Corey Seager was a legit MVP candidate. We've run all the numbers. He has as much to gain as any hitter in baseball because of the shift restrictions now. I think he could absolutely explode. And in a division that week, I can dream up a scenario in which Texas wins 85 games. Have I convinced you? Yes, you have. I absolutely look at them. And, and I know, I think overall, we, we both have a lot of questions about what the Red Sox have been doing. But in terms of the strategy, if you're not going to spend huge dollars – their strategy to try to improve over last year's team, I think, is sound mm. uh, by improving their bullpen because that was a problem area. And if you go from having one of the worst bullpens of baseball to, let's say, you're in the upper third, you know, in terms of performance, that could make a significant difference in late innings, in one-run games. Uh, I, I'm not picking the Red Sox to make the playoffs, but if you told me at the end of the year they won same range, 83 to 85, wouldn't mm. be completely shocked. No, you're not buying it? I can see it in your face. I'm a little bit more skeptical with Boston in large part just because of the quality of the division. Now, obviously, the balanced schedule is going to probably help them to some degree, but I'm looking at 15 games against Oakland. I'm looking at 15 games against the Angels. I'm, I'm, I'm viewing the American League West having provi- providing them a clearer path the American, than the American League East, which I think Ooh, there are. I don't know if I agree with you there. You know, you got the Houston Astros. you got the Seattle Mariners. I think the Angels are better than what people realize in terms of their pitching, Otani, Trout, um, but anyway, go ahead. I, I interrupted. No, you could well be right. Uh, maybe the Orioles will take a step back. We don't know. What I'm saying is if I'm projecting these things out, how clear, how clear a path you can sort of forge for yourself within your division will go a long, long way. And I think Texas will have a more clear path. 
And I'm really buying the, the, over the last two years the vast improvements that they've made to their roster, and they were a lot better than that 94 loss performance last year might indicate. Speaking of Otani, uh, Alden Gonzalez wrote a piece the other day uh, talking to a lot of executives, evaluators around baseball about what Otani's going to get in a contract. And you and I have been talking about this for months. The key number is five, okay? In terms of average annual salary, it's going to be $50 million plus. Uh, Alden addressed the question of whether or not he'd get $500 million. You think it's going to be higher than that? Yeah. So my mother-in-law is a real estate agent. So I often hear her use the term highest and best. And Buster, I don't think $500 million is going to be highest or best. I really don't. And while I think there are some who might say, Tani is maybe volatile or a potential, there's a lot of potential downside there because he does both. I would respond by saying he is a surefire, slam dunk, can't miss investment because he does both, right? Here are right. the numbers. So over the last two seasons, Otani owns an OPS plus of 152. <laughs> that ranks sixth over that time, sandwiched between Jordan Alvarez and Vlad Jr. That number, again, 152, is equivalent to the careers of Frank Robinson and Honus Wagner and Mike Schmidt. And that's how good a hitter Otani is right now. Over that same period of time, he owns an ERA plus of 156. That ranks fifth, sandwiched between Carlos Rodon and Max Fried. That number, again, 156 is equivalent to the careers of Clayton Kershaw and Pedro Martinez and Lefty Grove. His agent will be selling a 29-year-old who hits like Frank Robinson and pitches like Pedro Martinez. That guy has the easiest job in the world. And when you extrapolate the value that he has produced over that time, what Fangraph says is that the performance over the last two years equals $140 million per year. Excuse me, $140 million in total, 70 per year. So if we're going to say 10 for 500 is, is our guess from now, what the numbers say is that that is way short of the mark that he is performing on the field. And that doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of the value you are getting with all of the marketing stuff and the global appeal and everything else. I don't think that number starting with a five buster. And I'm not sure it's starting with a six either. I think Shohei Otani might be much closer to a billion dollars than half a million dollars. Uh, half a billion dollars. What do you think? What do you think? Crazy? I don't know. Closer to a billion than 500 million. I don't think he's getting like 751 million. Like, I don't think he's going to be at that tipping point. You know, we'll see. But I would say it's interesting because I think the two teams that are eventually going to be, you know, the most heavily involved in this bidding, and I know the Angels' new owner will step up. But in the end, I, I think Otani's going to wind up choosing between the Dodgers and the Mets. Uh, and we know Steve Cohen, you know, cost be damned. And guess what? If you're Cohen, you've also, and Billy Epler, they've structured all these contracts where these big, big dollars attach to guys on one or two year deals, Max Scherzer, Justin Verlander, you know, to a lesser degree, Canaw, uh, you know, Escobar. Mm -hmm. So they'll be in a good position to make a bid the way you described in the Dodgers taking down their payroll this year, you know, moving forward to next year, they'll be in a good place to do that too. Yes, that's a great point. I, I think the Mets and the Dodgers have to be considered the favorites. Beyond that, I actually think San Francisco and Boston are both potential sleeping giants because both big market teams without a lot of huge future uh, payroll obligations. What I don't know is what Otani most prioritizes because yep. if we're talking about the difference between $600 million, like we're talking about monopoly money. I mean, he's, you're buying the same stuff, right, with whatever contract that you're signing. So what, so what does he prioritize? What does he care most about? That's why I think the Dodgers have the best opportunity here because they can promise you you're going to have the opportunity to play in the postseason every single year based upon our track record. And they also have Clayton Kershaw to point to and say, we have figured out a way to be able to maximize 
the, the aging curve for our pitchers. Here's what your 30s are going to look like in our organization and lay it out as succinctly and as precisely as any team possibly can. I think Otani is going to value more things than just how much money am I going to obtain in my next contract because I think there's going to be multiple teams that are effectively going to be willing to give him whatever yacht he wants. Yeah, so I'm going to eliminate uh, both bidders you suggested beyond the two that we have. First off, the mm. Red Sox, uh, no, okay? They could. You're suggesting that the Boston Red Sox would give more money to Otani than they gave to, than uh, they were willing to offer Mookie Betts plus Xander Bogarts. No chance will that ownership, okay? And the Giants, I will tell you this, I think we've actually had some insight into what Otani wants is mm. that he wants to play at the highest level and he wants to friggin' win, Okay. Uh, when he came over, if you remember, if he had waited, I believe it was one more year, he could have been a pure free agent, but he's like, nope, I want to go as soon as possible. So I'll agree to terms. He goes to the Angels, uh, where he could play alongside alongside Mike Trout. After the most recent season, he was quoted in the papers and uh, in the media in Japan, essentially saying, you know what, uh, it's disappointing. I want to win. Uh, I think that's going to be a priority, and I think you would agree with me. The Giants right now, are not really close to that. And they might be able to throw a big number at them in terms of dollars, but I think the Dodgers and the Mets will present two teams that are both competing uh, and will be very aggressive financially. Yeah, I think you probably had that right. The one follow-up I have for you is what relationship or what, how much yes. do you think he might value the relationship with Billy Eppler previously? Like that to me is a worth considering as we're weighing all the options and what is going to turn out to be the year of Otani. We talked so much about what Aaron Judge's future might look like last year as he pursued 60 home runs and eventually got to 62. From dawn till dusk this season, the biggest story in baseball is going to be this. What does Otani's future look like? And the one thing we can say about the Mets is that they already have the man in the room that has once made it happen that could make it happen again. A hundred percent. And he and Otani have a great relationship. People with other teams believe that Epler's relationship with Otani was difference making. And Otani knows this about Billy. He, he'll believe him, right? He mm. can believe him. He believes what he said. So if uh, whatever Billy presents, forget the dollars in terms of what the team's plan is going forward. Otani knows that Billy's good for his word in terms of what he's trying to do. So we'll It'll be fascinating. I do think, again, Mets, Dodgers, all other teams can just sit down, go away, don't bother. Okay, it's a two-horse race. I can imagine Steve Cohen when he, when he purchased the Mets. Look, he's obviously a businessman. He's a mogul. What he wanted to do was not just build a great baseball team. He wanted to build an empire. And if Shohei Otani is the face of your franchise, you have done exactly that. Exactly. All right, Hembo, thanks for doing this. Later, friends. Get out series. of here, Hembo. Right, Sick exactly of Hembo. Right. Bleacher tweets. Alrighty, Buster. Bleacher tweets for a Thursday. And Taylor, I, I, I want to hijack this segment because I got to ask you about what Orioles cha chairman John Angelo said the other day uh, in his press conference on Monday, Martin Luther King Day, as he uh, underscored about 50 times during the course of that press conference. Uh, did you see that? The whole exchange he had with the Athletics' Dan Connolly? Buster, I've been so eager to talk to you about this. I mean, this was a full-blown one-man circus, a tone-deaf uh, stream of nonsense. Uh, a, a Nepo baby TED Talk is kind of the vibe I got from it. What did, I've got a lot of thoughts, Buster, but what did you think? Yeah, and let's give folks a chance to listen to, uh, to some of it, okay? Here's John Angelos, uh, and you're going to hear the voice of Dan Connolly during this thing. Uh, and, and listen for that moment 
when John Angelos, who, who is constantly, uh, you know, is in this uh, exchange with Dan, at one point he says, yeah, uh, you and others, I'm going to invite to, uh, you know, the third floor and we're going to show you the financials. That is pretty significant right there. But here's some of John Angelos. There's a vicious, virulent amount of racism historically through this country. And part of what we're trying to do here is change that. So it's really not important. It's really not important at all in the grand scheme of things to people that are clear thinking and who mean well and have a perspective to on Martin Luther King Jr. Day while we're talking about putting kids that don't have a shot in hell of anything because of where they were born through college to be talking about those kinds of things. So I'm going to object to that question today in this forum before the mayor of Baltimore and all of these people. Do we, do we understand each other? Do you, do you understand my complaint? I'm not asking well, you. No, no I, wait a I, second. I, I want to finish my comment because I'm going to answer your you question. You just asked me a question. That's why I was going to comment. But you go ahead. You finish yourself. You know, I find that to be highly inappropriate, and I think that your focus is completely out of touch and has no perspective whatsoever on what real-world people face and what the real pillar and role of an organization like the Orioles and Ravens ought to be. Now, my family owns over 70% of the Orioles. You, you want to write that down? I know that. Keep going. Well, that's funny you do know. I don't think most people know that, actually. Well, I get paid to cover your team, but go ahead. <laughs> well, you wouldn't really know it unless you, call, unless you read the cap table, so I'm volunteering that to you, okay. number one. Number two, okay, we're not going anywhere. Number three, the principal owners are Georgia and Peter Angelos. And number four... You see what we're doing here in the community. You also know that in 36 months, with an 18-month overlay of COVID, we were able to turn the entire team around. One of the top five or seven or eight or ten, I don't know, you, you probably do know that, um, reversals in the history of Major League Baseball, while also taking the minor league system from 25th to 1st. I actually don't know, and you may know this too, I don't know of any team, I did ask our folks to look at it, that have ever, ever had two number one prospects in baseball back to back, but that there may have been others. So I just think, are you from here? Yes, I am. Okay, I just think that we all ought to have a little perspective on what's important in the world. And what's important in the world is what we're talking about, what you're talking about. You can find any garden variety, high value sports team, or involvement, you're always going to have some controversy. But I've been very outspoken. I'm very transparent. In fact, in fact, I would invite you and all your colleagues next week, not on Martin Luther King Day. You can come back to this building. You can meet me in this office. I'll take you down on the third floor, and I'll show you the financials of the Orioles. I'll show you the governance of the Orioles. I'll show you everything you want to know, and I'll put all your questions. But today, on MLK Day, I'm not answering any of those questions. Okay, well, let me just respond very quickly and no, say No, no, I don't want you to respond. Well, I just, I'm well, not going to entertain those questions on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Which is the day that you set up for us to talk to you. This is the second time that we have spoken to you in four years openly. Let's take another question. So Let's take, and, another, and, and let me let's finish, take another question. Let me ask one more question here. No, I'm not going to let you ask any more questions because you're highly, it's highly inappropriate on the day on Martin set, Luther King Jr. Day.
Now, what was really gross to me, Taylor, the most was, you know, he, he kept on challenging Dan uh, as if Dan's questions were inappropriate. Let's make this clear. John Angelos doesn't make himself available for press conferences, right? Yes. And so on one hand, it was clear in announcing this, and it's a great thing that the Orioles are, you know, investing money in, in young people and trying to help them, but it's a whole other thing. You can't expect that you're going to get all the kudos for helping out young people and on the other hand not have to answer questions if you're the CEO of the team and people are wondering why you haven't spent money this year and I thought it was really kind of gross that he kept on using MLK Day as a shield uh I thought that was and he kept on talking about Dan Connolly being inappropriate I thought he was extraordinarily inappropriate with what he said I mean for a guy with a, you know, a billion dollar trust fund to accuse other people of being out of touch. I mean, what are we talking about here? I mean, he doesn't, like you said, Buster, he doesn't do press. The last two times, according to Dan Connolly, that he's done press is uh, announcing a Paul McCartney concert and announcing a Billy Joel concert. Um, you know, to, for him to sit around and talk about, you know, being a pillar of the community you know, he's been in the front office or he's been involved in the front office probably since like the early 2000s, you know, maybe late 90s. Like this for a lot of my lifetime, this has been like a failure of a baseball team. So for him to, you know, get on his high horse, refuse to take questions. I mean, and all he had to say was, I'll I'll talk to you after. I'll talk to the media after. Like, right. obviously, something else was happening. But when you own a billion dollar business and you want to be part of the community, you cannot run away from those things. And then to invoke Martin Luther King Jr. on top of it all. What are we doing, Buster? What are we doing? <laughs> yeah, there's so many questions about the lease, about the the team spending uh, uh, in the lawsuit that was filed by John's brother. Uh, there is, uh, you know, a statement made that uh, John was looking to sell the team. So all those questions are there. And I agree with you. You know, he could have easily handled that by saying, hey, Dan, I understand your question. For the moment, let's focus on, you know, this initiative to help people, Martin Luther King Day. But I promise you that I'm going to stay here and answer questions afterward. But I think we're all sort of glossing over the headline. I, because of his panic and his anger in answering this question, he basically said that next week, you know what? I'm going to have you and your friends come down and look at our financials. Great. I can't wait. I can't wait for Dan and the Baltimore Sun to get down there. And great, John, you know, you want to become the first owner ever to completely open your books? That'll be wonderful next week. Buster, you want to meet me in Baltimore? You know, we can check out the books with Dan. <laughs> we'll uh, we'll go to the Crab Cake Factory or something. <laughs> let let me just put it this way. If I did, were to, if I were to get a flight to schedule that to uh, to meet you, I would get trip insurance. Because the idea that he's actually going to follow through and let uh, reporters see their books, no chance. <laughs> How many like phones and computer screens and keyboards do you think were smashed by the other owners listening to him offering to open up the books? A hundred percent. I actually, you know, his father, when I covered the Orioles, his father and I had a lot of conversations about that. He was thinking about opening up the books. And then I suspect he probably got people in his ear saying, don't do that. It's a private industry. The other uh, owners are going to go nuts. And that's why John Angelos will not follow through. And I'm assuming <laughs> he's not going to have a separate press conference, actually answer questions and not have to invoke MLK as a, as a, a shield. Uh, just truly wild. stuff. And you think like on, you know, like you, you rattled off all the reasons 
that he's uh, kind of been a recluse or whatever. But like, you think at this point he'd want to be like, hey, like I'm here like for the team and we're doing our best in this team. And he did say, you know, we're staying here in Baltimore. But like, I feel like he needs he needs to get people on his side right now. Yes. And like to act like that and even in get people on his side, he can defend like what Michael Elias is doing and not spending in free agency and, you know, making the team suck for years. Like that's a defensible position, you know, especially him as an owner. But like he's not even taking this opportunity to do that. So I just he just bad PR right there. Bad. I mean, he just he cracked in the moment. He totally crumbled and just didn't know how to handle himself because he doesn't do any media. So he, he doesn't get himself in the situations like this. No, which means he can't invoke. Uh, so this is inappropriate. No, stop. You, you never make yourself available. Um, and, and look, if you're going to be the person who's in that big, big boy seat, uh, then you got to answer questions. That's just the way it goes. You know, Hal Steinbrenner this winter, it looked like it. Uh, if they didn't sign Aaron Judge, it would have been a really tough winner. He was out there answering questions. And if you're in that uh, Steve Cohen you know, I'm sure at some point he's going to be answering questions. That's the job of the CEO. Anyway, mm-hmm. you and I have hit this uh, hit this plenty. So let's uh, let's move <laughs> all forward. right. Let's cool down. T Jones at TNJ six two nine rates and Buster. Do you think John Copolella will ever work in baseball again? Yep, I do. Um, yeah, he was someone who was just reinstated by Major League Baseball. You know, after being banned from the sport five plus years ago for. Uh, violations, what were considered to be egregious violations in the international signing market. It's pretty clear that, uh, you know, Copy, as he's known, you know, I knew him well when he was general manager of the Braves, uh, is someone who's uh, trying to work his way back into the sport. And I think that'll happen. Andrew Campbell at Real Camp Drew writes in, while it's totally understandable for Pittsburgh to want to hold onto their star players, how do they have any right to start the bidding war for Brian Reynolds at four blue chip prospects when they only offered him an extension of $75 million? Those values don't add up. Yeah, Drew, drop the mic. I, I can't add to that. You make a great point. Call Jacks at Call Jacks writes in Buster. You mentioned Tatis will be suspended to start the season. Does that affect his playoff roster eligibility? Now, I didn't. Uh, double check this with folks at MLB, but I'm 99.9% sure that uh, because he was in, in, ineligible for the playoffs last year, that that'll count, that this year he would be eligible. All right. We got two here that I'm going to couple together to close the show with because I need to issue an apology. Uh, Joseph Kos- Kosowski. Uh, sorry, Joseph. Uh, I bought Kosowski. There you go. Thanks, Buster. Uh, Joseph writes in, it's lame. Go somewhere you can win. Have some respect. How about you have some respect, Taylor? Gah, what a D word, because this is a family What, what is this in reference to? Mm, we'll follow it up with uh, Jeremy Termini here. He tweets uh, a quote from me. Lame, the Orioles are fine. Methinks Twins fan Rena Benina has some fighting words for Taylor. And uh, I declared the Carlos Correa signing lame for the Twins. Um, or just lame overall, not for the Twins. And I'm sorry, Twins fans. That was rude of me. I'm very... You should be excited. Don't let me yuck your yum, okay? I just thought <laughs> as a storyline for the podcast, it kind of stunk. But I'm happy for you guys. And I would... A Twins World Series? I mean, that would be fun. Having them, you know, defeat some demons, beat the Yankees in the playoffs, something like that. Like, I'd be all in. So I hope it all happens, Twins fans. I'm sorry, Rena and uh, Joseph. <laughs> That's well, and you heard Hembo. He said the path is clear for the Twins to win the American mm-hmm, Central. Mm-hmm. Right? So we're very pro-Twins. Maybe, that, maybe they're our pet team this year. Who knows? 
All right, that's it for today. That's it for this week's. My thanks to Alden, to Sarah, to Hembo, to Sarah and Taylor. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something that we need to fight against every single day.